Welcome to episode 19 of Chin Music. It's a podcast. It's presented by Fangraphs in Stormy DeKalb, Illinois. My name is Kevin Goldstein, our special co-host this week. Joining me, not from New York, very happy to say that, but from the West Coast, from the Bay Area. You know him very, very well from his Twitter presence, from his writing about the Giants and, and Major League Baseball on The Athletic, where he also does podcast stuff. It is the inimitable and wonderful Grant Brisby. Grant, how are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. Do you think your audience knows me well? Like, do you think it's... If they don't, they're morons. Of course they do. All right. I just don't think I'm a he-needs-no-introduction guy. I think I still need plenty of introduction. <laughs> I did uh, I did radio in St. Louis this afternoon, and when they came to me, they said, joining us from the Celebrity Hotline, and I felt <laughs> really, felt really good. <laughs> you know, one time I was in Pizza My Heart, and uh, someone recognized me in front of my daughter, and that has given me like eight years of she's she's sure that i'm famous so i'll I'll take whatever i can get uh thanks to whoever that was in pizza my heart so um real quick housekeeping thing uh our special guest was going to be chelsea james the national baseball reporter for the washington post uh chelsea had travel issues where her flight got canceled she was gonna fly and then land and check into her hotel and stuff and then join us but now her flight got canceled and she's scrambling and so we're scrambling. There might be a guest. There might not. Right now, it looks like it's going to be a guy who once drove a drunk man home because he got in his car thinking it was an Uber. That's our most likely guest. There might be no guest. We're still figuring these things out. And uh, But we'll talk about a lot of baseball. We have things to talk about. We'll go through your emails, talk about our musical guest, the punk rock strangeness of critic dummies, of a moment of culture, the usual stuff. And maybe we'll have a guest and maybe we won't. We don't know yet. Uh, Grant, I... The last two episodes have been nonstop sticky stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, and we saw, you know, the the the, the, the quote-unquote enforcement uh, started this week. Uh, Monday was kind of calm and just, you know, people looking at hats and belts and gloves and stuff. And then on Tuesday, we had the shit show began <laughs> with uh, the Nationals-Phillies game. And Joe Girardi doing whatever the hell it was he was doing with Max Scherzer. Um, and then Sergio Romo pulling his pants down. Um, it was a good time. Um, and so my question is, is like, it's what all everyone's talking about. And it was like, even I, I wondered if they would even do it as much as they did on, on MLB Network, which is obviously something created by Major League Baseball. Uh, this is entertaining as hell, right? I mean, I think... I can I can admit that, um, I, but yeah. is it good for baseball? No, I mean, and that's that's the thing is it's entertaining. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, I enjoy watching Sergio Romo throw his hat down and whip his belt off uh, as much as the next guy. It is a gifable moment. It is a repeatable, replayable moment. And it's it's fun as heck. It's dumb. It is such an own goal by Major League Baseball. Like, I see some takes where it's, oh, they, they plotted this. This is seven-dimensional backgammon. This is Game of Thrones. They're trying to set this up for, uh, you, you know, the CBA negotiations and stuff like that. I just don't think that's true. I think they were... Just like like the performance-enhancing drug era, just, uh, we gotta do something, boss, we gotta do something, and then, like, they just don't think it through. That seems to me to be Occam's razor, because they don't look good. It doesn't, nothing, like, it's not the healthiest conversation. It is a conversation, people are paying attention to baseball, but it's not the healthy, like, people just, you know, they're, they're calling them buffoons. It's It just doesn't look good. And then we saw yesterday, um, Rob Manfred said, it, it just... It's going good. This is great. This is this is we're achieving something here. Um, did you know what's? It feels like you know that they, there was a bit of a nail with a hammer, kind of thing, or nail with a sledgehammer, rather. Um, the the enforcement policy of this, and we're seeing what's happening, and players are unhappy. And uh, I, I like how is this going to be the rest of the year? Or do you think there's going to be kind of a a readjustment, if you will, and them saying, look, rosin, rosin and sunscreen are okay or whatever, or, or saying this is the goop you can use or. That should have been the plan the whole time. I mean, it just makes yeah. too much sense. Just some sort of universal substance and saying, listen, if you can pick up a cinder block with your hands, you're going to get in trouble. But if you use rosin and sunscreen like everyone else, because baseball has already admitted that it's good to get some grip on the baseball, which is why there's a rosin bag in the first place. Baseball players were saying, you know, that that's great, but we could use a little bit more. I think it helps, you know, not necessarily to have us cheat, but just to, to get get the grip that we're supposed to be able to get in the first place. Uh, the balls aren't consistent, so uh, let us do that. It was such a simple fix just to say, listen, if your RPM are going bananas and, and through the roof, that that's not going to fly. If you're using this to get wiffle ball-like movement on your pitches, know that that's against the rules. But if you're trying to get a better grip, like most of you are, uh, keep getting a better grip. And so that should have been the plan in the first place, but I don't think they can go back now. I don't think that you can go, oh, okay, okay, actually, we've heard your complaints, now it's going to be rosin and sunscreen. That would be too reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think baseball is just going to keep going with the zero tolerance thing and revisit in the winter. But yeah, I don't see them going back, do you? I don't. And and I, yeah, what happened on Tuesday in the Nationals-Phillies game was what I was worried about, where it became... I don't care what Joe Girardi said. Like he was, it wasn't strategic. Like he said, Oh, I've never seen him go to his head that much. And that was weird. And, you know, I, I saw someone else tweeting like 17 Twitter animated gifs of, of Max Scherzer wiping his brow during a game. So it was clearly not the case. Um, and it just seemed like he was just trying to get in his head. And, and I, you know, I think there are pictures we can get on their head. Max Scherzer would be very, very, exceptionally low on my list right. <laughs> of guys you can do that with he's a, a bit of an intense human being and then he reacted the way he did it and that was like the thing i was worried about like when i saw what happened on monday i was like you know this this is dumb but it seems manageable um and then tuesday made me worry that it might not be and um you know we ended up in this weird situation where you know guys are pulling down their pants and sergio rome was a fun guy and having fun and um and and Scherzer's screaming people, and I just worry we're going to have a fight at some point over this stuff. And and I, I think it's I and I've said this before. I don't think this is something that was, um, 
intentional, but I think MLB is kind of happy with the collateral damage, if you will, of having players sniping at each other uh, going into a CBA year. I would agree with that. And and that is, you know, it's not so much a conspiracy theory as it is. Uh, it's just sensible and it, it stings, you know, but I... I don't know. I think that people are so jaded over the whole uh, post-Mitchell report era, and I don't think that that could have helped baseball a ton. You know, they say no, uh, you know, any kind of press is good press. I just don't think that's the case. And I think baseball had uh, some serious uh, PR issues when it came to everything after the Mitchell report. And a lot of that was, uh, again, own goals and just not getting ahead of the problem. And and it's similar to that. And yes, you have players sniping at each other and maybe that gives them some sort of extra leverage when it gets to the CBA but I think it more just reinforces the idea that baseball doesn't necessarily know what they're doing that they're a little bit flying by the seat of their pants uh and it's just not a good look maybe I'm a little too deep maybe I just as someone who watches hours and hours of baseball every day I think about baseball more than the average bear but uh, I don't know. I just I just can't see this being a PR win for them at any point, even considering the CBA. It just feels like baseball, unlike uh, this is the worst sport at not allowing its sport to move on from controversies. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. You know, I think other sports deal much better with these kind of things and, 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 and do PR work. And it's definitely PR work to kind of um, get the focus back on the game on the field or on the court or on the ice or whatever. Um, and baseball doesn't do that. I think part of that is, and I talked about this with Mark Carrick last week, it's just because baseball's fan base is, is one of misery um, <laughs> compared to other sports. And I think that's part of it. I think people like hating baseball who love baseball. Um, but I, like, I don't, do you think this is still a story on August 1st? I think it could be because what baseball failed to anticipate is there is a big market for the people who see the world in black and white and just have a binary view of this stuff and they can point at some go, oh, cheating. I you know, know those just, people all too well, yes. Yeah, you know, like, they are, it's, <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, like, oh, now I'm against it. I was for it, and now I'm against it. And I just think that there are too many of those people, and it's so easy. It's just, it's the lowest common denominator to just look at uh, something like sticky substances and go, uh, cheating, you know, that, that that's what it is. It's black and white. It, it's, uh, my mind is made up, and we have to root these cheaters out because it's integrity of the game, and won't somebody think of the children and stuff like that. And I, I don't know. It's it's just when it comes down to August, there's still going to be people really that's going to be the fun of the sport for them is complaining about cheating. I don't know why or what void is in these people's soul, but they just really enjoy it. And they got a I, real. I, I, no, I think you're in a Fisher point. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, they got a real kick out of, you know, the Mitchell Report era, and that was like, you know, boon times for them. Uh, it, and now it, it's back again. I, I do think there is a, a, a section of sports fandom that is so overwhelmed by the unfairness of the world, mm. the real world, that they want to have this little thing where fairness and rules work mm. and, and live. And live the way they think the real world should work, and they and when sports don't operate like the real world, and they and and be or do operate like the real world, if you will, and and all of a sudden these kind of gray issues come, 
they get very upset. They need a black and white thing and they can't get that in the real world. And that's what they, that's what sports is for in their mind. Um, it gives them a, it provides a structure that the real world doesn't. And when that structure starts to disintegrate, they get very upset. That's a good point. And I think that just goes with binary thinking in general. Mm -hmm. uh, you're never going to figure out the world. You're never going to have all the information. You are never going to understand uh, why we're here, why things happen, why the bad people win. Like, if you just look at the world in general, it is just so very easy to become binary and reactionary and just this bad, this good, made up my mind. That person is against me because they're evil. And it might not be the healthiest way to approach life, but it certainly is one of the easiest. And I think that can trickle down into sports as well um we're gonna for the first time in three weeks talk about actual baseball now <laughs> so uh some. yeah yeah the, so the big story this week was um the the best prospect in baseball a player everyone thinks is the best prospect in baseball i don't know of any um rational to use that word again human who doesn't think he's the best prospect in baseball uh wander franco of the rays coming up with the rays in the and they won last night but they're in the midst of i think a nine game losing streak um, and now he, he's here to save the Rays. And you know, this happens with all prospects. They come up and they're expected to be the savior. And he had a phenomenal first game. Um, he was just wonderful. Uh, he's drawing walks. He had a bomb, um, made a nice defensive play. It's all there. Uh, and I mean, I think the East is very, very interesting. I don't think the Rays are as good as they've been. I think the Yankees are better than they've been. I think the Red Sox are kind of low key, kind of real. Um, this just made a, a, a divisional race that much more fun, it seems. And if you're going to pick the kind of prospect who can come up and maybe carry a team on his shoulders a little bit, it's going to be someone with Franco's profile, where it's not just wild power, just hacking uh, from you know the lower torso and just going down and trying to hit 110 mile per hour with every swing he takes. Now, I mean, there is a, a refined element to his game. You know, he plays a premium position. It's 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 all there, and you're looking for a flaw, and the flaw that I can see is that he just hasn't done it yet. And so it's harder to assume, but this isn't, you know, I don't, I, I'm trying to think of a prospect. I don't want to throw any prospect into the deep end of the pool, but you know, <laughs> like the guys who come up and you could see you kind of squint and you, you get like Joey Bart last year, you know, the Giants yeah, had yeah, troubles uh, catching last year. And he was just a guy who was raw. He had, you know, low walks, high strikeouts. There was a lot that needed to be refined in his game. And, I admit I got caught up a little bit because he had a good, strong first impression. It was like, yeah, no, he'll be fine. He's the savior. And then, well, no, it's going to take him a while. It might not ever, you know, he might not be as good as Mike Zunino, you know, that there's yeah. still some things to work on for him. With Franco, it's just like, what's his floor? Like, even at age 20, what's his floor? I, I just think it's a reasonable floor on a contending team. He's probably going to help no matter what. I think he's going to help. I just always worry about, like, I think we've been really uh, spoiled of late with people like, Vlad and Tatis uh, and Juan Soto and these guys coming out and and looking sometimes not as fast as others like Tatis came out raking um, Vlad took a year or so and and mm -hmm. but to come out and look like uh, mercurial talents like once in a generation like franchise players um, that all of a sudden when the guy who's number one prospect comes up people are like oh this is the next Tatis or Acuna or Vlad and he's probably not he might be and certainly in the realm of possibility, but like the, the, like the expectations on prospects in general, I think are way are very dangerous. 
um, and you're just setting yourself up for a letdown. And I mean, I agree it's going to help. And I, I think the bike, you know, the floor, I don't know, like 270 with a 775, 800 OPS. Um, that's a good player. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, but like this expectation that he is going to suddenly hit, you know, be the best shortstop in baseball or, or in that conversation. I always, I always think that's dangerous. It is. And one thing that gave me pause was there was a graphic on the telecast where it's like youngest raised position player to debut. And uh, number one was BJ Upton. Number mm. two, I think, was Wander Franco. Uh, number three, I believe, was Delman Young. And yep. number four was Carl Crawford. And it's like, of those, Carl Crawford is the obvious success story. And yet you get a, a sense that if uh, he has Carl Crawford's career, it would somehow be disappointing, which is bananas. Yeah, absolutely. Totally bananas. And I, and I think this happens. I just think like we, we live in a world where we, it's, it's like this prospect hugging. And, you know, I do a chat <laughs> at Fangraphs every Monday and I always get like overwhelmed with questions about some guy who's a pretty decent prospect and he just had a good week in, in high A, right? And he just had a week where he went 12 for 20 with four home runs. And I get, do you think this guy's a top 50 prospect now? And you're like, well, he started the year like his number 16 in the system. And no, and he's hot and it's great. And that everyone's looking Everyone wants to have their Vlad or their Tatis or their Acuna or their Soto or whatever. And you, it's just, we've had a hell of a run here, guys, um, <laughs> with, with just remarkable players coming up. And, you know, I don't, don't, don't expect that to keep happening. It's, 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 it's going to be a bump for sure. Not a, not a trend. I, well, I, I don't know. I think Marco Luciano is going to come up in a couple weeks now and just take the <laughs> National League by storm. Mark my words. He's very fun. He's very good. Do you think, what do you, if if you went to, I'm going to give you a clean number so you can do the math. If you went to AT&T Park, that's where the Giants is now. It's AT&T Park, right? No, it's Oracle Park. See, I screw everything. I never get stadium names right. It's yeah, a problem. Right. It's you, went to Oracle, you went to Oracle Park tomorrow and uh, there were 10,000 fans in attendance. I know they're opening up soon, but there were 10,000 fans in attendance. How many of those fans know who Luciano is? Whew, that is a good question. Um, I, I would go with half. I, I, you know, and I'm using... You think it's that many? I do. You know, I, I just think you have, with talk radio, you have, I guess, half of the people who would consider themselves serious fans. You know, not the people who are there. Because I don't know how many fans at any given game are, like, just there for the Sundays and because they go once a year or once every five years. I, I actually don't know the percentages. But if you ask the people who consider themselves, like, Giants fans... Uh, quite a few, just because it's so, you know, anytime you dip your toe on the internet when it comes to baseball or talk radio or uh, mm. however, whatever medium you're using, you kind of pick up on this stuff. You know, you catch a spring training game, you 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 sort of just, uh, it becomes natural and to, to figure out who these prospects are. And Luciano is one of the more exciting guys to come around in, you know, a decade, a decade plus. Uh, now, my control for this experiment would be my parents who are season ticket holders. I don't know if they would know Mark Luciano. So I, mm. I I would err on the side of, you know, there's a lot of hardcore fans who watch every game who maybe don't know. Uh, but I would still say it's it's fairly substantial. I think the, the business of prospect hounding is is robust. And uh, that's a good segue to, I, I do want to talk about your world. Now you cover Major League Baseball, but you do have a, a, you do have, you know, a, a keen eye on the Giants. Mm -hmm. um, and the National League West has been, the most entertaining division this year. Um, if I asked you the day before opening day, how many games the Giants were going to win this year, what would your answer have been then? 
I think for another Fangraphs podcast, I said 80. I believe that my okay. stock answer was 80 with caveats that it could be 70 and it could be 90. I was fairly uh, bullish on the Giants, but still uh, somewhat practical. So you thought this was around a 500 team? Yeah, I thought so. With you know, And once you're at 500, a couple breaks here and there, and then you're not 500, you're much better than 500. So that's the credit I was given them before the season. And, and as we stand right here on... June 24th at 4.21 p.m. Central Time, the Giants are 48 and 26. Yeah. Are you, is there any part of you that is still has trepidation about what the Giants are doing because they've exceeded expectations so much? Or have you watched them enough to be sold? A little of column A, little of column B, uh, insofar that I, I do think that there's a lot of legitimacy to what they're doing. It's not like they're they're getting goofy with the one-run games. It's not like they have a bullpen filled with guys who are just letting them squeak out every close game. It's it's not like they have uh, one guy you weren't expecting going bananas and, and carrying the whole crew with him. It is, uh, it's coming from a lot of different places uh, obviously, Buster Posey doing what he's done is somewhat unexpected. I think I was expecting him to, to kind of gracefully go into that Jason Kendall elder statesman. Uh, you're happy to have his glove and whatever on-base percentage he can provide role. And he's just been rejuvenated. Brandon Crawford is playing the absolute best baseball of his career. He's 34 and his swing, he just looks dangerous. He has yeah. an approach where I've watched him hit for a decade now. And he's a, he's always been a decent mistake hitter, uh, more power than he gets credit for. But now he's got that like, there's just players who have a vibe when they're really going. And, and he's had this since the second half of last year where he's not going to miss mo- that often. When you're throwing him, when you have to challenge, he's going to be there just lying in the bushes. And I remember, I go back to uh, Chris Taylor in the 2017 World Series, the, that whole postseason. He was just a player who was uh, just locked in. Like I'd never seen it. You just, how do you get him out? You can't go in the strike zone because he'll be there waiting for you. You can't go out of the strike zone because he's going to spin on it. And, you know, some players just have that vibe for me. And, and Crawford's got that for me right now. And, you know, I, the, the starting pitching has been great. I mean, I felt like going into the year, if you had asked me on April 1st, I probably would have been around where you are. And because they were in a division with the Dodgers and the Padres, I thought that by this time we would be writing about all of their amazing trade chips. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, a roster that is absolutely uh, filthy with expiring contracts. <laughs> um, so uh, basically their entire starting rotation is, is gone at the end of the year. Um, the big people we've associated with the Giants forever, you know, Belt and Crawford and guys like that. Um, they can't do that anymore. Uh, I mean, do you, how, my question is like, how aggressive are they going to be? Do you think on the deadline here? I think they're going to be proactively aggressive. And what I mean by that is they are going to perhaps look at players who, especially starting pitchers, who might be around in 2022. And that makes sense when you're talking about an entire rotation leaving. Uh, You might want to start proactively trying to fill those holes now. You might want to be looking at a guy like a Luis Castillo or Mm -hmm. Matthew Boyd. I mean, you don't have to get too wild with it, but you might want to just start, okay, if we're going to give up some prospect capital, let's get someone who's going to help fix what's going to be an obvious problem, uh, which is to fill four or five rotation spots. It's going to be like, you don't just want to do that at once. It's not like you can roll into Costco in November and pick up a five pack of relief. 
relievers or, or five pack of starters, you want to <laughs> maybe have one of those players in place. And it feels like, I mean, no matter what happens, and, and you know, I assume Giants fans are having a hell of a time this year. It's it's a lot of fun to watch, but no matter what happens, this is a this is a dramatically different team next year. No matter, right? Yeah, I think I think that's. I mean, you have the let's see, the players under contract for next year are going to be Evan Longoria, uh, Tommy Lastella, Jake McGee, I believe, uh, Jose Alvarez. And that might be it. Posey's hitting so well that they might exercise uh, their like twenty million dollar option on him. Right. Uh, you know Crawford. There's going to be interest in bringing Crawford back. I used to think that it was oh the Giants are going to get one of Trevor Story or Carlos Correa or Javier Baez. Like they're going to get one of these premium shortstops. I think now Crawford actually fits their timeline even a little bit better on a two year deal to come back and see if he can do half of what he's doing right now. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, it's, it's you know, you see this kind of thing. Are they going to try to bring these players back, um, you know, as opposed to letting it even go? Like, it's are there players who, I mean, look, we, you know this, you live there. San Francisco's a great city. Um, it's a good fan base. It's a good team to play for. Um, they take player, care of their players well. They they have the money to compete. Um, like, is there a chance that even, you know, even like a Gossman or somebody just says, hell, I'll just come back here if the money's right. I would think so. I, th- I think Osman uh, is impressed with the organization from the moment they signed him and gave him, okay, here's what, here are our plans for you. Here's why we think you have more uh, to offer. Uh, here's how we think we can uh, extract that from you. And he bought in and boy, it sure looks like they're doing the right thing. And he's, you know, he's been very vocal about, I like this organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that with all these expiring contracts in their timeline and what they're going to be doing, uh, you know, especially if they're contending this year and they'll be they'll have expectations for next year. They're going to be in the market for a Gossman like pitcher if it's not the actual Gossman. I mean, there aren't that many of them and, and they're going to be looking to spend. They're going to have plenty of money coming off the books. They have a, a low payroll this year. They had a low payroll last year. It's it's going to be time. I mean, they, this has been the plan at one point to just uh, go and attack the offseason market aggressively. So someone like Gossman coming back. Absolutely. That might be uh, the default. That might be the, the the best odds that you can give them. Uh, and obviously, you know, they are in, as we said, they're in the same division as two monsters um, with the Giants and the Padres. Uh, nonetheless, Fangraph's playoff odds currently has the Giants an 83% chance to make the postseason. Um, they're in first place right now. And they're, they're up four on the Dodgers and, and four and a half on the Padres. Uh, what do you think their chances of actually winning this division with those two Giants behind them? I shouldn't use the word Giants there because we're talking about the Giants. That was, that was, that was <laughs> it's confusing. Up. Oh, you, you blew my mind. <laughs> what do you think um, about the Giants with the Giants behind them? <laughs> I think they have a fair chance. I mean, I've seen this team and I do think they have a lot of question marks uh, where you have a lot of the offense coming from players in their mid-30s. And as the, the dog days of summer grind on, are you still going to get a, a 966 OPS from Buster Posey? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not. Like, I think that's a concern. I do think that depth in the rotation is a concern uh, because now we, we, you've got Gossman, you've got Discofani pitching at an all-star level. After that, you know, Wood and Cueto are sort of trending in the wrong direction. Logan Webb hasn't picked up a ball in a while. Aaron Sanchez is on the 60-day IL. I mean, there there are depth itch issues there and to beat the Dodgers and the 
the Padres, you're going to need to be playing as well as the Giants are playing right now. And can they do that? I don't know, just because I don't think most teams can play this well. Uh, I think the Giants uh, have, uh, let's see, what are they... Since like 1958, so since they moved to San Francisco, they have like the 30th best start in uh, history, like mm-hmm. since 1958. Like no team does this. The Giants, the 2021 Giants aren't this good because no team is this good. Uh, so they're going to have to be this good to take care of the Dodgers, especially and the Padres. And I don't know. They don't have to give these wins back. But I would be a little suspicious that, you know, they're not going to win 65% of their games going forward. Now, the the, the Giants are managed by Gabe Kapler. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Gabe Kapler first got a manager's job in Philly, it was it was a bit of a controversial choice. Um, he had some very publicized mistakes. Um, he's a little out there as a person. But right now, he's leading the team with the best record in the National League. Um, like, how big an impact is, do you think he's been on what's happening right now in San Francisco? It is tricky because uh, we haven't been allowed in the clubhouse uh, right. over the last couple of years. So that is where you can pick up on maybe uh, how a player is saying is something, how he's hedging his comments, uh, the look on his face when maybe he's talking uh, to one reporter about his manager as opposed to uh, every reporter who wants to be on the Zoom call. So you just kind of got to go with what you're seeing on the TV. And what we're seeing on the TV is a team that – Sure looks like they're buying in. I mean, they, it doesn't look like there's a lot of discord. Uh, they I, seem to have a fun vibe. It. I said this on uh, my podcast with a- Andrew Baggerly. There aren't turds on this roster. You have a 26-man roster, and uh, you know I don't know these players personally. I'm not uh, bridge partners with any of them. But it just seems like there's a range from like stoically professional to really fun professional. And in the middle are all different kinds of professionals, and they all seem to get along. And I, I looking at the roster, I'm not getting like, oh, that guy seems like a butt. You know, like it just, they all seem like <laughs> decent dudes. Like, and they, they have a long history of being decent dudes. And if there is one butt on the 26 man roster, he's probably keeping it cool because everyone around him is, is seemingly fine. Who would be the most likely player on the roster to play bridge with you? Bridge. Yeah. You know, I have no idea how to play bridge. So that would be someone who's faking it like me. Uh, I think Alex Dickerson would be polite enough to like say, oh, I'll play bridge. And then we'll sit there and, you know, I'll, I'll play like the according to Hoyo rules card and he'll go, oh, Joker. haha, Gotcha. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I should have said cribbage. I can, I can do cribbage. And I think Brandon Belt would be a mean cribbage player. <laughs> um, have you gone to games this year? I have gone to two. I'm going again on um, Friday against the A's. But yeah, I've gone to two. And as media? As media, yeah, correct. And how's that experience been? It's been fine. Um, you know, I was I took the, the whole shutdown uh, real seriously. Mm-hmm. I was one of those guys who was wiping his groceries long after they said, you probably don't have to do that. Uh, I was really on the paranoid side just because of a couple health issues I had. Um, but also, uh, you know, my mother-in-law uh, is recently widowed and we wanted to make sure to be in her bubble at all times. We didn't want to have it where she right. uh, could not be uh, alone for uh, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks while we just gallivanted around. So it was a real journey once I got vaccinated and once my two weeks was up 
just going out with so much less trepidation. Yeah. And last year I went to a couple of games and obviously no fans. And that was a different vibe because you go in, you sanitize, and then you don't come within 10 feet of anyone the entire night. And then you walk out and it's the same thing. Like you're touching a bathroom doorknob and that's about it. Uh, this was, you know, you have fans and when you're in the Giants press box, there's kind of a causeway in front of the front row where fans can walk and they will definitely be at your face level. So if someone, you know, walks by without a mask on, you are sucking in their germs. And it took a while for me to like, yeah, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Science is good. Science is great. You know, science is why I'm here. Hooray. Let's stop worrying about it. And then once I stopped worrying about it, it's, it's a blast. You know, it's, I've, uh, now I'm like every weekend I'm at garage sales looking for, for vinyl yeah. records. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back to that part of my life to where I'm not worried about so much these days. Yeah, no, it's weird. Like we, we started going out to eat once in a while. Um, we went to, uh, a, a like thrift store last weekend that we would have never thought of going to when all the shit was going down. Yeah. Um, and it's still weird. Like everyone's, I still like, you know, you see like, oh, a bunch of people wearing masks. Maybe I should be wearing a mask now. And I'm not sure what to do. Um, I, how is, I know California was a huge, had a huge problem. They were like the, the bad place for a while. Um, here in Illinois, things are like crazy down. I know other places that have had more vaccination problems are not crazy down. How is the Bay Area right now in terms of COVID? Uh, Barry is fine. Barry yeah. is, you know, when California is really heating up, a lot of that was uh, LA, right? LA, yeah, Southern California. You know, the South Bay got hit fairly hard. Um, so there was some up here, but here I'm in Alameda County and especially in Castro Valley where I am close to, if not 100% compliance, when you're walking into a store, everyone's mm-hmm. got a mask on, you know, even, you know, if you're trying to eyeball it and stereotype people based on looks, you would see someone pull up, uh, you know, in a pickup truck and, and you're stereotyping them in your mind and then they pull out a mask just mm-hmm. because they're being polite and respectful and maybe you shouldn't stereotype like a dingus. Um, so I just hear it's been... 100% buy-in close to it. So I've always felt comfortable going into the stores. The numbers are down. Um, you know, it's, it seems it seems fairly chill. Um, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Maybe we'll have a guest. Maybe we won't. It's just, it's, we don't know right now. It's, it's, it's all over the place. <laughs> uh, then we'll come back. He'll read some of your emails, talk about a musical, kind of have a moment of culture, and we'll catch up with Grant's life. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. It's special guest time. We found a special guest. He is uh, one of the preeminent experts on the Toronto Blue Jays. He's got a podcast and everything to prove it. And joining us on such incredible late notice is the fantastic Drew Fair Service. Drew, how are you? I'm doing very well. I didn't Thank even say where you are. Me. You're on the outskirts of Toronto, let's call it. Uh, I am in an exurb of Toronto. Let's go with that. Uh, my first question for you, Drew, is how much hair have you lost this year watching the Blue Jays bullpen? Uh, luckily, not that much. I am quite uh, here suit. I have a lovely head of hair. But the Blue Jays bullpen is definitely taking years off my life. It is, uh, if only someone could have seen this problem a mile away. But uh, it's been a little bit rough watching the Blue Jays bullpen at times. And what, you know, the Blue Jays, we talked earlier, uh, Grant and I talked earlier about the American League East, and we kind of only talked about the Rays and the Yankees and the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays are only a couple games behind the Yankees, and and they have a winning record, and they're still, I think if you squint, they're still in it. Um, They, in some ways, you can look at them in a weird way and say they're going to have one of the biggest July ads just in having, hopefully, a healthy George Springer joining them. I mean, what is the what is the level of optimism or pessimism, I guess, in, in, in Blue Jays world? I would say that a lot of fans are quite optimistic. The, the biggest thing that Blue Jays fans are hanging on to right now is the schedule. The Blue Jays have played, like all teams, a very unbalanced schedule. But that means that here we are towards the end of June and they've only played the Orioles three times. Um, before uh, tonight, I guess here on Thursday when we're recording. So they've got a ton of games still against the Orioles in the back half of the schedule. They haven't played, you know, the Tigers and the Mariners and and a lot of, you know, they have another series, I believe, up against the, against the Angels. So there are winnable games out there for them. They haven't, you know, they've got a lot of really strong performances from players they maybe don't have wouldn't have thought and I think the other thing is on top of the Springer edition as you mentioned there's still a few other you know Nate Pearson if he can get healthy Thomas Hatch the fixes such as they are don't feel insurmountable like the the things they need to add to the team to make it competitive and make it you know they're no worse than the Red Sox they're not a worse team than the Red Sox they're similar to the Red Sox in a lot of ways and and I don't think that they're worse than, than the Yankees on balance and the Rays are the Rays so they're kind of confounding in their own way but I think that the only real, the realist, the biggest issue that's facing them is is the amount of games they're behind now, and just that they only, you know, they they're just behind the eight ball from that perspective. But I think there's a, there's a sense of hope because the schedule is more kind coming in the second half. Um, I mean, this is uh, this one the the one thing I want to talk to you the most about really is is you know the Toronto Blue Jays did not play a home game last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they have not played a home game this year. Uh, I had a, a brief exchange with, um, I'm sure you know, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounded like there might be home games at some point. If things work out, there's some optimism that something could happen in the second half of the year where the Blue Jays actually play in Toronto. But having not had a baseball game, a Major League Baseball game in Canada, and Toronto really is kind of Canada's team at this point, but not having a game there, has it altered their footprint in Canada? Have people found other things to do or have they followed the team just as much even though they're never in Toronto? I think that the the fans who, the, you know, the diehards are, have been there, uh, 
everyone's still kind of stuck at home, especially here in Ontario. We've, we've been very slow to open up, um, you know, relative to some other places uh, for a variety of, you know, COVID reasons. So I think that the, the hope is still there. And, and, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about this on my, on my, my podcast the other night, which is that the thing that's missing right now is kind of like the, the hype and the energy that comes from playing in front of a full building. Uh, Toronto has a huge Korean community. And Hyunjin Ryu has never pitched a game in Toronto where that would have, you know, two, three full sections of Korean people cheering, doing, you know, just going out of their minds cheering for Hyunjin Ryu. They, you know, that's a huge thing. The, the George Springer coming back, for example. I mean, if, if when, when I think back as a Blue Jays fan to 2015 or 2015, when they added David Price, they added Troy Chulewitzki, they added... Um, you know, these pieces of the trade deadline, it went from being, you know, kind of half full. They were a 500 team. Suddenly the team starts playing better, but the building was full and there was huge amounts of excitement. So the Blue Jays haven't been able to capitalize on any of that with their additions with that, you know, George Springer, if it was to have his big unveiling, they haven't had that, which I think has not helped them in terms of, 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 of gaining hype and gaining attention, which at this point in the season wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing to have people not as much notice that they have misunderperformed or that they've given away countless games. So I think that they're, I think it's, it's a huge, it's a huge loss to not be able to play their games. And then when they're playing in Buffalo and they play against the Yankees, it's an away game, right? right. There's so many up, upstate New York uh, Yankees fans who are showing up and in, in Florida, when they're playing in Dunedin, it was like that for basically everybody, you know, the Rays, the Red Sox, whoever was, was playing, there were always going to be lots of those kind of traveling fans. So in terms of, I don't, I, 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 I can't say that it would necessarily affect the play on the field, but I think that that kind of fan sentiment is affected by that, by not having that friendly atmosphere, not having that that home crowd that's really able to kind of add that energy and that excitement to the experience of watching them on on TV or being at the ballpark, of course. Do you feel like their media coverage has been the same? Just not just in terms of like amount, like how in the in the public eye they are with them not playing home games. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Toronto's a massive market, right? There are a lot of people who cover the Blue Jays full-time. There are two, you know, national uh, sports channels that are based in Toronto that give the Blue Jays tons of time. One of them, one of which, of course, the company that owns the, the, the regional sports network owns the team as well. So there's no lack of Blue Jays coverage. Uh, what you do, what there is, is they're not battling for for attention right now, which they could have maybe taken advantage of the fact that the Raptors had a down year, the the Leafs in, in hockey had a hilarious end to their season, so there maybe was a missed opportunity. But again, I think you know there are enough baseball fans in Toronto, there are enough people that care about about the team, and and it is such a uh, just a fast growing place with tons of young people, especially the right live right around the stadium, that all you need to do is kind of light the match and a, and a strong winning streak. They're able to charge up and get into a playoff position or, you know, take take some games off the Red Sox and Yankees. I think that fan attention will come, will snap right back. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think, we say like, you know, they're in fourth place, they have a winning record, they do have a lot of really good players and, and a lot of obvious holes. Um, they also have money. I mean, this is a team that, that, based on their ownership they there's money to be spent there uh if they want to do you sense a busy next four or five weeks for them in terms of trying to do something about the bullpen and other places i think that i don't think that they'll sit on their hands i think last year at the trade deadline again so the blue jays into 2020 season with the expanded playoffs they kind of coasted into a playoff spot they didn't play 
well at all kind of through the latter half of, of September, but that, that playoff spot was never really in doubt. But the team did make a few kind of keen adjustments. They, they, that's when they, tra- they acquired Robbie Ray, who they, of course, re-signed and is having a terrific season. They acquired Taiwan Walker, who's played really well. They made a few uh, small upda- uh, upgrades in the bullpen, and that was last year where, again, they were not really in a position to kind of push more of their chips into the middle to kind of overcommit to the the the, the, the the product on the field as it is. I think they're in a better position this year. And my hope is sincerely that they'll, that they'll make those kinds of adjustments or those kinds of um, moves forward. I think that uh, they're in a position where they could maybe move, make a, make a move for the, a player who might have an extra year still remaining in terms of um, before they hit free agency, you know, kind of the names that get bandied about sometimes Jose Barrios or even you know, Joey Gallo is a bit of like a hobby horse of mine. I think guys like guys like that could be upgrades, not just for this team, not just for this year when there are so many things going right for the team. I mean, a lot of Blue Jays fans are kind of saying, well, this is a this is a wait and see year. And if they can make a run, that'd be great. But next year, you know, they can only expect to get even better. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. You know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., there's nothing artificial about what he's doing, but there's no reason to believe that he's going to be this good all the time. Right. Uh, you know, Marcus Simeon is, is, is a, a little bit of found money. Robbie Ray, you know, Stephen Matz has is, is been consistent enough to be, you know, a guy that they can count on. Uh, there are a lot of things that are working in favor of the 2021 Blue Jays, maybe getting that bump and not just being like, wow, this is a, a kind of a ramp up year. My hope is that they can, in fact, you know, make an investment, trade from some of their, their prospect capital that they do have and, uh, and, and do something to really um, shake things up a little bit in the division. Uh, I mean, you talked about Vlad and the seasons he's having and, you know, an OPS over 1,100 right now. Uh, as someone who doesn't understand Canada and bases his entire knowledge based on Kids in the Hall sketches, um, how big is he in Canada right now? Like, if you, if you had to name, like, the top 10 most famous popular athletes in Canada, would, would he be one? Would he be five behind hockey players? Like, where would he be? I think he would be pretty far up the list. He is and has been kind of the perfect storm of of prospect and baseball star. He has the name recognition that, you know, automatically evokes a lot of exposed nostalgia. But plus, you know, when he was coming up, his numbers were off the charts and he was very much like a Instagram po- uh, prospect. You know, there's a videos of him hitting home runs in New Hampshire mm-hmm. that are off the hotel and Buffalo, he sent it out onto the highway. So it was like, he, he was just so good for so long with that instant name recognition that it was sort of like everything worked. He, he's really famous. Like he's the number one vote getter for the all-star game um, of, of anybody. Right. And I mean, some of those votes are from, from Canada, but you know, I went to his debut and there were people were buying shirts. They could probably barely keep them in stock. But that's the other thing too, is that especially now in this great, you know, breakout sort of actualization of the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. that we were promised there haven't been those home games. We, we don't, God only knows how many Vlad, you know, Guerrero 27 jerseys are out there floating around. So that's one of the, another thing to look forward to is to be able to see that with, with, with my, with all our own eyes and be like, Oh, right. This is a phenomenon. That is, that is something that uh, we won't soon forget. Like this doesn't happen very often. And my hope, my hope is that Blue Jays fans appreciate that and can like kind of relish it and, and just enjoy it enjoy watching a guy who's got an, an ops over 11 like at 1100 and you know with a week to go until july like it doesn't happen it really doesn't and when it does it's guys win mvps guys hit 50 home runs like it's a big season and i really think that you know doing a day in and day out is only going to raise his profile i mean he's probably not as famous as like kyle lowry right now but who among us can say that they are 
I don't know who Kyle Lowry is. <laughs> oh, you break my heart. <laughs> who is he? <laughs> He's a point guard for the Raptors. He won the, the, the they won the twenty nineteen, you know, NBA championship. He, oh, he okay. he's like the Raptor though. He is the Raptor. He is, he is the Raptor. They he played is. a championship in twenty nineteen? <laughs> they did. I don't know, Grant. It was pretty great. Uh there was no, a I bunch. think it was canceled. I think it was I think I read online that it was canceled. I missed the whole thing. It was a shame. It it truly is a shame. I but, felt bad because I was sure you were gonna tell me he was a hockey player. I mean, Connor McDavid is the best hockey player in the world right now, but he plays in Edmonton, which is like the Canada of Canada. Like, it's sort of like, wow, that, that's strange out there. They have odd practices and bizarre accents. But I will, I will raise my hand and say I've never heard of Connor McDavid, and I don't know how that's possible. So, I'm, are you I'm serious? Ha- I'm happy to join in. Yeah, I'm an idiot mm-hmm. too, but in a different sport. Uh, Let me tell you, I, I am no great hockey fan. My hockey fan has definitely lapsed. I'm enjoying the Canadians' run. I liked the Canadians my whole life as a mostly. To, piss off the people around me uh Connor mcdavid it's like he's playing a different sport he's so good and moves so quickly on the ice it's hard to believe that he's not like powered by a jetpack it's really truly a, a wonder to watch as an aside i i i also just learned the canadians are doing well they are i, I learned that again as someone who would like self self-identify as a canadians fan i spent the first round of the playoffs when they beat the leafs in hilarious fashion being like Oh, that guy plays for for Montreal. That's interesting. Oh, he's the coach. Who knew? But I'm still happy to like fly the flag and talk and tease my friends in the group chat. So it works works really well for me. <laughs> I like uh, the sport of hockey. Like I like hockey. I, when I watch it, I have a lot of fun. So it's, I don't want to like make it seem like I'm just like oh ha ha. Like I'm making fun of the sport. It's just that when your day job and your passion is to like watch, I don't know, Kelby Tomlinson at bats. That's all you got time for. <laughs> that that's all you got time for. So I just I'm out of time. No, I yeah. get that too. Uh, that's something that when I was doing this every day, a lot of the sports sort of fell by the wayside. And even one thing, when I because like you said, when you're having to watch Kelby Thompson at bats for your job, or you're having to watch grainy minor league videos and be like, oh, you know, what's wrong with Alec Manoa's slider? Is he leaving it up? <laughs> to have something that's kind of still a little bit more pure, and for me, that's been like soccer. Soccer is like I'm not. I try not to get too much into the X and O's. I'm not reading transfer rumors. I'm just like oh, the game is on, that's delightful. And I have fun watching it and I follow it closely, but it's not like something I need to invest in intellectually any more than it just is like an emotional thing. That's like me with the Warriors. That's why I brought up that it was canceled. For the listeners who don't know, I'm a Warriors fan. The Raptors beat the Warriors. But the Warriors for me are that, uh, oh, you know, they're on. Great. You know, but I'm not necessarily on warriorsworld.net all the time, like trying to figure out what they're going to do with their draft picks. And so, yeah, it's a healthy balance. I know Steph Curry's on the Warriors. He sure is. That's my that's my Warriors knowledge. (laughs) They played a wonderful brand of basketball, unlike any I've ever seen in my entire life. I I I think that the Big Three Heat were like the most compelling basketball team I've ever seen. Watching them try to figure it out was amazing to me. But watching the the true Warriors, like with when with Durant and everybody was healthy, it was like it was like nothing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I hate Grant for getting to watch it every single night. (laughs) Um. We talked about Toronto maybe playing in the second half, and I think it's important to talk about this because um, <clears throat> as Americans, we are spoiled and we also um, live a lot of our life with blinders on. And, um, you know, I, Grant's fully vaxxed. I got my, you know, second shot in May. Um, and I have a friend who lives in Canada, and, and, and they were so excited because they're getting their second shot in August. Um, and, and it's important like things are not happening as fast elsewhere. You know, Scotland actually, I read had their biggest COVID increase since the pandemic started yesterday. Um, This is still a problem in a lot of places. Can you talk about 
you know, it, you're seeing stadiums here saying, hey, we're opening up, it's full attendance, and yet we're still not playing in Toronto. And things haven't happened as fast there, right? Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing when it comes to vaccine is that Canada does not have the domestic vaccine production capabilities that the United States and a lot of other countries do. That started something in the 70s and then was sort of accelerated in the 80s where they basically said we're not going to be in the business of, of domestic vaccine production. So every every vaccine that Canada gets has to be imported. And unfortunately, Canada is a country of 35 million people. So in terms of purchasing power, they're not necessarily at the front of the line ahead of bigger countries, bigger economies, even though the Canadian government was like, we're going we're gonna to be first in line. But that said, we're doing really quite well in relative terms now uh, in terms of first dose coverage across the country. Canada made a little, a few kind of stretched the rules a little bit in terms of um, extending the second dose um, interval to try to achieve uh, a much higher uh, first dose coverage across the country, which has been uh, quite successful um, in terms of on a per capita basis. I believe at this point, more Canadians have received their first dose than second dose. The second doses are now catching up. I got my second dose yesterday. Oh, example. congrats. So, well, thank you. Yeah, so that, that's the and you're and you're, and you're alive. Like, I, boy, the day after my second <laughs> dose was a nightmare. My arm is killing me. I can barely lift it over my head. But other than that, I feel like I've dodged a, a small headache-sized bullet. Nice. Uh, I've, I've been doing. I've been doing well um, in terms of in terms of uh, my effects of getting the second dose. But so what we're seeing now is that can, we had in Canada had extended the second dose interval to try to make the most of the first dose. But now uh, between Pfizer and Moderna, uh, uh, the, the the doses are really rolling in. So what we're doing in Canada is, again, sort of just sort of making up as they're going along a lot of the time. So I received Pfizer for my first dose. And then they were like, well, we're low on Pfizer and only you know teens like 12 to 17 can receive Pfizer. So we're going to hold that for them and we're going to give Moderna to more adults. So I've got a mixture of mRNA vaccines um, coursing through my body right now. Not but, to mention uh, Bill Gates microchips. Bill, Bill Gates microchips, but uh, so in, I mean the the impact um, for 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 COVID nineteen across Canada has not been insignificant, um, but the Canadian government uh, Canadian governments you know in terms of at the federal level and the provincial level and then even into what we call like our individual public health units has been um, they've been trying to be a bit more um, rigorous I think. Uh, I think if you look at, you know, Ontario, where I live, has, a, what is it, 14 million people? So if you compare the COVID cases, COVID deaths, all that sort of stuff to a place like, you know, Illinois or Michigan, uh, Ontario has done, done quite well. But that said, where I work, so this is, if I seems like I'm a little bit, I know more than, than like some people, I do this in my job all day. So I, so, so I have a bit more familiarity with some of this stuff. But so I think that in a lot of ways, Wait, Canada you, you, done you do well. what in your job all day? I do social media for for uh, uh, public health or for a, a regional municipal government. Oh, so okay. I'm in like public health meetings and with public health professionals and meeting with our top not meeting often but like interacting with our top doctors, mm-hmm. sharing, disseminating public health messaging for every day for the last eighteen months. Is so. there is there like a weird, sizable goofball anti-vax movement there like there is here? Of course, absolutely, one hundred percent. It it as so again as I so I do social media. I do social media. You know community management it is among the most challenging things i've ever um done it, it really just like sat, sucks the life out of you reading insane comments from people who some that may be well-meaning and are just sort of misguided versus some who are just like just so angry and so determined to to 
I don't know. It, it, it takes a lot. It, 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 it takes a lot out of me at sometimes. I mean, I'm not here to complain. I'm, we're good. We're talking about baseball, but it's, it's a lot. And, and in Ontario, where I live, again, their government is, uh, is quite conservative and they've sort of hewed a little bit to the, the, the side of science and listening to doctors while still sort of making curious decisions often with like a more business-based uh, background, business-based criteria rather than what's better from a health, public health perspective. And how locked down is Toronto right now? Like, can you go to restaurants? Can you go to... So they've just opened up um, like outdoor dining. Uh, a lot of places didn't have indoor dining. So it's been up and down uh, in the summer, like last summer, you know, in, in Ontario, okay, like, so flu season is, is the fall and then in, in, in early in the spring. Um, but so in the summertime, the cases were really low. And then we like, just like in, in, in the US, we got our, our second wave in the late fall. And then in January, things started to open up again. And then the third wave started and everything locked back down. And they've, so things have effectively been locked down since, since January. Um, for much of much of Ontario, uh, so in other places they have been they've done a better job of, of combating against uh, against COVID nineteen, and uh, some places that were more willing to open early, like Alberta, which is a very conservative place in Canada, um, they were they were really eager to open up, and then they've really paid the price with a lot of uh, a lot of COVID cases, a lot of deaths, a lot of uh, all of the things that you would expect. So, like most people, you know. Tab- Tattoo artists and, and hairdressers—they're op- they're ready to open up next week for the first time in months, months and months. So it has been pretty locked down. There's been a lot of there's been a huge human cost to it, right? Like the aside from the disease, small businesses and things like that that have really struggled. Um, the Canadian government vowed from the very beginning they were like, no one's going to go, no one's going to lose their business, no one's going to lose their job. They have a it's what's it called CERB, the Canadian Emergency something benefit where they've just been giving people money to stay at home and giving people money to sort of float their businesses along. Not quite the same. It's still really challenging for a lot of those, a lot of people and a lot of folks who, uh, who have been through a lot and, and that sort of fuels some of the anti-vax fuels some of the anti-COVID sentiment, but the, the, the vaccine coverage is getting to the point where we're opening things up this week. And then hopefully another, another expansion of that sort of, um, of reopening will come a few weeks after that, uh, to the point where, you know, they're, they're having, um, we go back to the Montreal Canadians, they're playing games in front of fans, like a much smaller, you know, might, might only be 10 or 15%, uh, in terms of uh, capacity in the building, but people are in there watching them. So that those better days are on their way. Right. Um, back to baseball before we let you mm-hmm. go, will you, have a podcast that previews the Toronto Blue Jays playoff series this year. Here's the thing. I don't think that I will. I, at the beginning of the season, I saw, I had talked to some folks about the Red Sox and I said, the Boston Red Sox are going to ruin somebody's year. One of the Rays, the Yankees and the Blue Jays, the Red Sox are going to ruin their season. I don't think I expected the Red Sox to be as good as they are, but I figured that they were not, a dog that's just going to roll over. So I expected them to show, sort of show up and just beat one of the Blue Jays, Rays, or Yankees, like 12 out of 19, whatever it is. Like they were just going to have an extraordinarily good season series and that be the thing that knocks them down. Well, as it turns out, that team is the Toronto Blue Jays that the Red Sox are just have been able to pick on. And whether or not the Red Sox finish as strong as they, as they have, I think that they've just already caused the Blue Jays enough problems that that margin of error within that tough division that you were already speaking about um, is going to leave the Blue Jays sort of out in the cold a little bit, and and maybe next year will be there will be the year. But um, I think this year will be a a, a a Blue Jays tradition, the Blue Jays gold medal, which is to finish fourth but with dignity. So. <laughs> 
Well, Drew, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, can I, I can I ask just one question, or else I won't be able to sleep tonight? You can ask as yes. many as you want. <laughs> Are those literal Blue Jays behind you, and did you have them delivered to you as audio color for this podcast? You can hear Blue Jays. There are Blue Jays in my neighborhood. They have a very distinctive call, and I hear, I hear them all birds. the time. You hear I birds? Hear... There's people walking around upstairs, but no birds. But there are Blue Jays very, very close to me. I might be. Uh, I, I, I might. I might. I might be the birds. Oh man, I thought that there were birds in Drew's no. house, and that he just like had them bust in for his Blue Jays. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I could never take mind. the mic outside. We could find one. They have a very distinctive like <laughs> caw. They have a very screechy caw. They're great. Blue Jays are good birds. They're mean. They're bastards, but they're they're cool. <laughs> Drew, thanks again for being our backup guest when the guy who uh, gave the drunk person an unexpected Uber ride didn't respond to my messages. You've been great. If you want to follow Drew on Twitter, he is at Drew Groff. What does that stand for? A ghost runner on first. There you go. My so, old blog back in the day. So yeah. Drew G R O F. You can listen to his podcast called Spin Rate. And uh, you have anything else you want to plug, Drew? No, I, I do a newsletter about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. called Vlad Religion. So you can find that <laughs> in my Twitter bio. <laughs> Subscribe to Drew's Vladimir Guerrero newsletter. I, I, who knew? Uh, Drew, thanks for coming on. And, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. Maybe we'll have you on if the Blue Jays make the postseason and to do a little preview with us. It would be my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I uh, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, man. Welcome back to the podcast, and and big thanks to our special guest. If we had a special guest, I don't know. You might this might be going straight from the first segment to this, and you might have had a special guest that we don't know yet. That's the kind of <laughs> that's the way we live in in this world right now. Um, musical guest, critic dummies, uh, critic dummies is just a fun, silly punk rock band. And when we have the musical guests who we play their songs in between segments, I always ask for like a bio and, and whatever you want me to plug. And all they simply sent me was three man-hating wasteoids from Minneapolis who love Rick Agnew and have the singer of Piss Jean's phone number but are waiting for the perfect time to use it. <laughs> so that's Critic Dummies. This is from their most recent release, Die Nasty. Uh, you can find all of their releases and they can you can buy them and name your own price. and. You know what? 
pick one, download it, and pay them $1,000. It's criticdummies.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Drew for getting in touch uh, and, and supplying us with music for this episode. Are you ready for emails? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Boy, am I ever. <laughs> it's the highlight of your day. <laughs> if there's one thing I'm known for, it's checking emails. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for all your emails this week. Um, we got a lot of good ones. Some of them are going to be safe for next week. Uh, if you want to email us, do so. Chinmusic at fangraphs.com. We read all of them. We reply to some of them. Um, and this is also the time where I always tell you, if you are listening on some sort of Apple device, uh, please rate and review the podcast. It helps. And I can't explain why because it's never been properly explained to me. Uh, our first email comes from Matt. And uh, Matt says, Hi, Kevin. Starting beer number four for tonight. And again, late night emails with you under the influence of chemicals are always good for the show. Uh, just started reading the new book about the Astros cheating scandal, which is I the Andy Martino book, uh, Cheated, which, uh, if you haven't checked out, is actually very, very good. Um, and then he says, How dare you scout games while wearing a fucking fedora? And then he high, took a scan from the page of the book, which I will now read from. And that scan simply says, Scouting games in a fucking fedora? One veteran scout sneered upon seeing Goldstein at a ballpark during his first year, unwittingly demonstrating just how hostile the industry could be to even the smallest unfamiliar detail. Um, I did wear a fedora until, and I did it until kind of until the Gamergate stuff happened. And all of a sudden, like weird alt right guys were wearing them. And I didn't want to be associated with that. And I don't anymore. Um, and so I just have like a floppy hat that's traveled the world with me. Um, but yeah, I, I was called much worse. And to be clear, like, I, I will say this. It's very important to me to let this, like, the overwhelming majority of people in the baseball industry welcomed me with open arms and were super, super friendly and nice to me. Um, there were fucking fedora people. And uh, I was called a uh, insert homosexual slur here with an earring at a game once. Um, I got uh, I got flat out motherfucked to my face at a game once in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I got a little bit, but for the most part, everyone was really nice to me. But yeah, it was fun to read that part in Andy's book and, and just remember that um, it wasn't always uh, perfect. Um, but overall, it was. I don't want that to be like. I don't want people to think like that's how the overwhelming majority of the industry saw me. Because it's not the case. Like there were, you know. I, you work at the athletics, a few hundred people there. I'm sure there's some jerk stores. There's a jerk store in the giant. We still know who it is. Like it's, there's jerk <laughs> stores out there and it's, it's okay. Like most people were really, really nice, but that was fun to read. Um, I am just, uh, I, I wish that I had thought before now to wear a fedora to the press box with one of those, you like know, press tags. Squares. Yeah. One of those squares in it. That's, that reads press. I yeah. have not taken up that opportunity and I think I have to now. Yeah, no, I, 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 Gamergate destroyed my hat collection. I don't know how else to put it. Um, <laughs> but if you put press in there, I mean, now changes the whole dynamic, press. doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. No, now you, you know, no one's trying to read between the lines. You just go up there. And it's like, all right, tell me the scoop here. What's what's going to happen here on the game? You know, tell me about it, Johnny. <laughs> that's that's how I talk in the press box, anyway. You should. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> like when you, I, you said you got to do a few Giants games. Like, do you? I understand the feel like you want to be there. Um, but with the situation, I guess it's different now because you can go on the field before the game. But, you know, I guess this question might be more to 2020 and more to earlier this year when you couldn't go down the field. You know, after the game, it's still Zoom time. Um, like, did you gain anything from going? Yeah. Well, it's different for me. I will say that my colleague, Andy Baggerly, uh, 
he did he had a real rough time because he wasn't a fan of the zoom he he didn't feel like he was getting anything necessarily from being at the game uh at least not to make it you know worth the effort and the expense to to, to get out there for me it is a way for me to focus on the game uh mm-hmm. outside of my home because i live in my home and i never leave it and i work from home and before the pandemic that was difficult in its own way since the pandemic everyone's home and especially when it comes time to watching baseball uh my concent- my ability to concentrate isn't always there. Sure. Just not because my family are jerks, but just because there are other people around who aren't necessarily focused on the game. They're living their life and it's, you know, it, they're, li- they're humans. And when I go to the game, even in the pandemic times where there wasn't an ability to go on the field and, and all that stuff, I'm just able to sit and watch baseball and... I, I do it. I do it more when I'm at the games. I'm I'm less likely to screw around on Twitter. You know, I'm it's it's a weird thing right, when right. I'm at the game. I, I like I feel like I'm watching every pitch, and then my eyes go up to the uh, the tape delayed telecast to kind of see oh where was that pitch? What was it? What was the movement on it? And like I rarely watch baseball games like that anymore. I should. It would be great, you know, for me to it would be good for my career. I just don't do it anymore unless I'm at the game. Hmm. Uh, our next email comes from Nick and Nick says, hi, KG, when a minor leaguer gets suspended for sticky stuff, how will a team handle that behind the scenes from the outside? We'll see him go away for 10 days and then he'll be back and it probably won't affect much in the long term. But are there more consequences on a team level, a stern talking to from the manager, extra wind sprints? I can't imagine an organization being totally cool about it, but I doubt anyone will get cut as a result. What do you think? I focus on minor leaguers because teams tend to be more paternalistic towards them and lack of a union helps there. I can't imagine any consequences for big leaguers, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I don't think teams would take it too seriously. Uh, I think I know that from talking to some other people in the game, like they have had uh, a message has been distributed top to bottom that you can't do this and, and will support the suspension, but I'm sure that you would just get a talk to and uh, and go from there. Do you think, you know, we talked about sticky stuff earlier. Do you think, we're, I asked Mark this last week, Mark Carrick, like if I set the over under on major league suspensions for foreign substances at 0.5, what do you take? I think I take the under. I think you really got to be a special kind of dingus to go out there and just assume like, ah, I'll be fine. You know, especially with the very visible checks, the between inning stuff and Romo uh, pulling his belt out. I mean, it's, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? Like it's, it's not just like maybe they'll come out to the mound and I'll have a Joe Necro moment where the, the sandpaper falls out from my back pocket. You know, what's coming and you know, what's coming. So it just, you got to figure out how to pitch without it. This is, like if Gaylord Perry, every time he walked off the mound, an umpire was right there being like, all right, let me see that. Let me see your buckle. Let me see that. He wouldn't have been the same Gaylord Perry. And I, I just I can't see a player thinking he's going to somehow elude uh, detection. Right. Uh, our final email comes from Andrew. Andrew says, hi, Kevin, an esteemed guest host. You're esteemed now. Yeah. Do you feel esteemed? Uh, usually, you know, I'm, I'm a celebrity. You're esteemed. Yeah. A couple um, drinks in. I'm esteemed. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can address this, but I'm curious about your relationship with the media during your time with the Astros. From your pre-baseball life, you must have had plenty of media contacts and used sources yourself in gathering information. 
After joining the team, did you provide information to media sources or was communication limited to non-Houston topics? If you did provide information, did you ever read an article and know when your specific information or quote was used? Uh, for colleagues, could you tell who provided any sourcing for articles? Thanks for the many hours of written and audio entertainment. Um, I did talk to the media and, and uh, I tried to have a good relationship with the media that they can be helpful to you as well. Um, I definitely, the one thing I didn't do was ever kind of provide a scoop. I never in my time said, Hey, this trade's about to happen or Hey, this signing's about to happen. I, that wasn't my place. And it's something that as a team, it was very frowned upon. I definitely talked to people on background about stuff. Sometimes Astros, sometimes not. Um, and I definitely, uh, and this might sound weird, but this was, you know, we, I've talked about this on previous shows, like part of trade discussions, and, and this is obviously coming up and going to be a hot topic over next month, is is makeup digs. And there were times if I had a really good relationship with a writer and I could trust them not to let it out, uh, which was just a few of them. Like I could call, let's say I had that relationship with Grant. I'd say, hey, Grant, we're talking to the Giants about this player. Is he a good dude? Does he play cribbage? You know, and, and, and just like, hey, you know, I obviously don't want this out there. Um, but you know, just need a favor from you and happy to help you with something else. Um, cause, and this was during a time, obviously before the pandemic, when those guys were in the clubhouse every day and, and they had great insights at times into players, you know, is this guy a good dude? Um, and so did, you know, have the media help me and I would try to help them. Um, Jason Stark always has those kind of, um, where he kind of surveys the industry pieces, um, I responded to those all the time. I would talk to Jason and then I would read it two days later and go, yeah, there's my quote. Um, so that was the only time I ever like saw my specific quote used. And, and there are other times where stories would break and you'd see a quote from a NAS executive and, and you would try to guess who it was. And sometimes you were right. And sometimes you were wrong. <laughs> um, do you, do you power the giants with the media? Giants the, front, the, the front office. Uh, they're really good. You know, I actually don't have a, a really strong relationship with the front office. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just, I never have because my business is to do dumb opinion pieces. And I, I do think there are areas where, you know, if they were talking on background and stuff like that, they would help me out. Um, but in general, it's, it's, I'm used to, my career has been built on me making crap up and it's sort of like, it's hard to explain. It's, it, it I'm coming at it from a fan perspective and uh, you know, I, I do have behind the scenes communication with some people in the front office with uh, some of the coaching staff. Like it does help inform me, but mm -hmm. at the same time, not losing that sort of here's my uh, outsider perspective, so to speak is where I built my career. And I don't want to somehow transition to being a little, um, you know, how, knowing all of the moves they're going to make before they make them, so to speak, as far as like, you know, here's exactly what they're thinking about this player. It, it would prevent me from writing, you know, here's what I think they should do with this player. Uh, if that makes sense. I don't know. Might, this might be a word salad. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it does make sense. And, and I don't take this wrong, but I, I don't, you don't, you, I don't know. You don't really see yourself maybe as, as like a news breaker, right? Right. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, and I, you know, and that's, I don't want to be that either. And, you know, and I, I had, a, you know, that was, I talked about that with, with David Alpin when I joined Fangraphs. Like, I don't, that, that's a full-time job and an, and an annoying one. And I think the return <laughs> on investment is very, very low on that. Um, Cause news gets broken all the time. And you don't remember who did it. Um, 
And it's just not, I don't, I don't want that life. Um, and so if you have, I think it was, I, I dealt better with writers who were not newsbreakers. You know what I mean? Right. We're like, right. you know, we're just talking, we're talking background. I just want to understand this better. Like that's a much better conversation than, you know, um, and I would get, you know, on July, the last week of July, my phone would be texting constantly. Hey, can you tell, can you confirm you guys are talking about this guy? And I would just go, I can't, I'm not going to respond to this. Um, cause I'm, I can't do it. Um, I will say that, uh, I can actually contribute a little bit to this email, uh, because in, uh, 2017, when I was working at SB nation, my bosses said, okay, you're going to Houston for the ALDS, uh, and you're going to write something, a big piece, uh, a feature length piece about the Astros and hurricane Harvey. And I was like, well, I, I make jokes here. Like I do, I do knock knock jokes, and it was it was really one of the more stressful assignments in my career. And so a couple of weeks before, uh, I I said, "Gosh, I don't I don't know what my angle's going to be. I don't know what my angle's going to be." And and so I reached out to you, and I talked to you, and mm-hmm. and you kind of you came at it with like, "Look, there are a lot of just it's a very diverse clubhouse, and they get along. You've got you know George Springer's the Connecticut guy. You've got Grail, the you know from Cuba. You just have like, and you went through the list, and and he said it just seems like." They're having a lot of fun. And that's kind of like what I made the whole article out of. Just, you know, Houston is kind of that city. Houston's a uh, just a really unique and fun city, a very diverse city, a city that's that has a lot of surprises that I don't think people give enough credit for. And I, I made the whole article out of that. And it's one of my favorite all-time pieces that I wrote. And it could not have happened without your help. I'm glad I could help you with something. I feel good about that. <laughs> um, it's, it's Thanks again for the emails. The emails at chinmusic at fangrass.com. It's time to catch up with Grant. Grant, how did you go from a guy who does knock-knock jokes to a guy who covers the Giants for a living? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> time for a moment of culture. No, um, no. no it, it's, it's, uh, no, like, it's it, like, like, I mean, you, you're, you're, I think for many, you're living the dream. Yeah, it, it was, uh, all right, so I am up in Oregon. I am uh, deciding what I want to do with my career. I- I'm trying to go back to school to finish my, just get my bachelor's. What were you and, doing at the time? Uh, I was a property manager. So I was, and I wasn't even like a property manager. I was uh, picking up phones at a place called Landmart in Ashland, Oregon. And I was showing apartments to college kids and stuff like that. Uh, and I just wanted to start a blog to practice my writing. I thought, I was going to be a a screenwriter. I thought maybe I'd be a novelist. And I thought, well, I don't ever do those things. I'm too lazy. But for whatever reason, when I hop on like the the Giants news group, I can spit out a thousand words about baseball when I'm contributing to Greg Perlman's site E, you know, and he wants me to do an end of the year essay. I I have fun doing that. And so I started a blog just talking about the Giants in 2003. uh, And from there, I think the goal was... One day the Chronicle is going to notice me. One day the San Francisco Chronicle is going to knock on my door and say, buddy, we just can't live without you. And won't you write about the Giants and you know bring your knock-knock jokes here? It, it was dumb as hell because I was just not a refined writer. It was – I was of the internet. You know, I was just – Yeah, I was, you're an internet goofball, but you were exceptionally good at it. Yeah, and like all I wanted to do was just – 
like I wouldn't crack jokes about the Giants and I was like, boy, I wish there were like some sort of like, I don't know, stand up comedian specific to San Francisco Giants stuff. Like if that were the case, like I would have a career and I would I actually told my friend that I was like making some description about Rick Wilkins rounding the base at 1996. And I, I said, man, I just wish there were like a position for stand up comedian for the Giants and I could work at that. And I, I, I don't know. It's kind of how it worked out. <laughs> I mean, at what at what point did it did it cross into? Uh, oh, holy shit! I might be able to make a living doing this. You know, when SB Nation when they emailed me in two thousand four or five, it was. I really wish I'd saved the email because it was funny. It was so. Uh, you know, dearest email recipient, we have come into a large sum of venture capital funds and with deposit into your account, would you be willing to move your blog? Like it was so impersonal, so cheesy. And it was, it, and it was like sent to a hundred people at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I ignored the first one. I'm like, okay. And then the second time came and it was a bit more polished and was like, Hey, you know, we've got this person from the internet is a backer. It's based on this guy's website, you know, the, the daily Co's, and it's very successful as you can see. And maybe you'd want to give it a look. And so that's when I gave it a look and, and I thought, okay, uh, I'll, I'll try this because this might, this might be something. And the most important thing that happened was they made me sign a contract and said, you have to write three times a week or something. Yeah. And before then, if I wasn't obligated to write for myself, I just wouldn't do it. I was lazy. I, you know, as a college dropout, I had no ambition. And once I had that contract and I was, I was like beholden to someone, I was like, oh, well, I, I'd better do it. And that kind of gave me the, the abs, you know, the, the six pack abs, as far as writing, like if I had to write every day, I did it. And then as SB Nation grew more and more successful, I started to say, okay, um, you know, I would actually see when Jeff Sullivan would tweet during the day and tweet a lot. I was like, this son of a bitch is full time, isn't he? <laughs> I, he's working for SB Nation. How, they picked him over me. Son of a God dang. You know, and I just wanted to be Jeff Sullivan. And then a couple years later, they hired me and, uh, uh, to pal around with them. So that, that was when I knew it could be full time. And um, were you surprised when the athletic approached you? They had approached me the year before when they were really just kind of getting off the ground. So not right. not really surprised. Um, they sure picked the right time. I mean, they they came to me when I was very disenchanted with SB Nation as far as uh, there was a three-person baseball team with myself, Mark Normandin, and, and Whitney McIntosh. Right. And they let the two of them go, leaving me alone on Baseball Island which is not where I wanted to be. Uh, I, I love those two dearly. I loved working with them. It was the best part of the job was the whole vibe. And I felt like the whole vibe was gone. And so right when I'm kind of at my lowest point, uh, the athletic comes a knocking again. And it's like, okay. And at that point, I really had no interest in going back to writing about the Giants full time. Um, cause I'd taken a little bit of break on that and focused on national baseball. But then the idea got to, it started appealing to me because, when you're writing about national baseball, it is very humbling what you don't know. And the more you write about national baseball, the more you realize you don't know. And with the Giants, like I could, you know, make an Ernest Riles reference, you know, to the 10,000th yeah, yeah, yeah. runner, or, you know, like I can, I can make these just obscure little references to 1993. Right. And that's, Talk listen, about Jesse that's, Foppert. 
that's all I got. That's all I got is Jess- Jesse Foppert references. You know, that's uh, it's a shame that I didn't go into particle physics, but I this is what's in my brain, and it would be a shame to just uh, let it go to waste. So yeah, it's you know, the knock knock jokes translated. And and like, what is your? I mean, how do you feel your percentages between Giants and National person? It is probably 90% Giants now. Okay. Um, I do power rankings about once a month. Uh, I do uh, kind of come in with these bigger features where I'm going to write about uh, like uh, the history of how teams chose their names. Like, And I'll have a lot of fun. I'll write about uh, Benji Molina's cycle. I'll write about uh, baseball stars of the Nintendo game. But those are fewer <laughs> and far between than maybe they should be. Uh, I, just because it's so much easier for me to do the Giants, and it also gets more of a reaction, frankly. It's just when I'm writing about the Giants, people seem to care. When I'm writing about national baseball stuff, I'm just, you know, one voice in a, in a sea of many. And and for a while before you joined The Athletic, you did some TV work. I did. I, I, would, I was on a post-game post show. So the Giants would play, and then there would be a post-game show, and then there would be a post-post-game show. And it was live. And it was for the 2018 Giants, uh, 2017 Giants, and the 2018 Giants. Mm-hmm. And boy, those were hard teams uh, to be the post post game show because you'd come on at midnight and you'd have to talk about a team that just stunk, and it stunk in a really unfun way. It was the yeah. end of an era. It was you know 2016 was way in the distance, which was the last postseason. You, they had like that one more. We're gonna try one more run. We're gonna get Andrew McCutcheon and Evan Longoria, and it, it just failed miserably. That September was, I think, the worst in franchise history. And by the time you're just going in every day to be the post post game show, what do you say? Like, what do you say about that team? And so that. In a way, it was uh, illuminating, and it, I, I don't regret it at all because it just it forced me to be to try and be entertaining when there was no entertainment to be found. Uh, right. It just it was just kind of tough. Like those were very tough teams to cover. Um, did you like doing TV though? It's fun. Yeah, I, I think I did. I think uh, when I when I watch myself. I had more nervous ticks than I, I would have uh-huh. expected. You know, I come from a theater background. Uh, so, like, <laughs> I, I pride myself in in being able to go on stage and singing, you know, uh, Officer Krupke and stuff like that. Uh, I went up to Ashland, Oregon in college because I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be in the Shakespeare Festival. I wanted to do all that stuff. So I thought it would be just a real natural transition for me to go into TV. And it just wasn't. Like, I'm just, I'm a little awkward, you know. It, it doesn't help that I'm a little balder, a little flat fluffier uh than maybe i was you know and i just i just sitting on tv and in live tv especially i just i I wasn't as polished as i thought maybe i could have been i i this is a strange story but i'm gonna tell you so at the end of my first media gig before i went to houston um i host i i was the sports guy on a morning show for a week um in chicago on chicago television and it was the weirdest thing in the world. Like they, so it was this show called Mid- Monsters and Money or something like that. And it had like these two famous sports guys in Chicago, like local famous sports guys, uh, Mike North and Dan Jiggets. And then the show didn't go well. And then there's some sort of contract dispute. And those two left, but they still owed the network like another week of shows. <laughs> And so they sent that what they called the one. I don't know even. I don't even remember how the producer knew me. I think he also did some stuff with like um, Comcast Chicago, where I did TV once in a while. 
and he called, he said, can you do the sports thing for a few days? And I said, I just, and I just one of those things where like, I've never done a morning show on television. Of course I'll do that. Like, why would you, why would you say no? Right. Um, and it was such a weird experience. My only thing, the only thing that went well, it was fine. It, it, the, it was like, there was one more day to go and I wasn't going to do it. And they said, Hey, we're just asking if you can do the last day. Uh, it's going to be with man cow. And I just said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I've had my fun. I'm not doing a, a morning television show with a man cow. Oh, my goodness. Man cow. <laughs> Bringing out all the hits. It was something else. Um, so, you know, it's it's you write for The Athletic. You have a podcast or two. Um, do you just kind of. Do you have I mean, it, it, I appreciate where you come from and, and I. I done similar which is kind of like you're just kind of riding the wave like are you focused on what you're doing tomorrow or do you have any sort of larger plans in this world no larger plans i mean really just riding it yeah just just riding yeah. it i mean uh, yeah, people always ask when's your book coming out when are you gonna do a book like, man it's hard for me to put on my pants in the morning and i like <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but not like, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a dad to two daughters. I try to be active in their life and in, in lives and in, in coach softball and, you know, try to be a part of the broader community. I'm trying to uh, be a good son, to be a good son-in-law, to be a good uh, friend to, to my college friends who I haven't talked to in 20 years. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just constantly like thinking about things that I'm not doing. And the last thing I need, um, is to like be working on something grander and have like a different fear of failure hanging over my head, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. I have no idea how I'm here to begin with. Uh, I, I, I just don't want to put out like a novel and have it stink and then have everyone, you know, work so hard and spend so much effort that could have been devoted toward my daughters on like a vanity project and just have it like no one, the world doesn't need a novel, more novels at least, not from me, certainly not from me. So I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm riding the wave. You ever thought about a nonfiction book? Yeah, I mean, there's baseball ideas uh, that I have had. You know, I've always wanted to write about the 1970 Giants. Uh, That specific period is fascinating to me because it's post-Maze. It is the Giants' glory years such as they were in the 60s. Well, now it's the 70s, and now it's they put AstroTurf on, and now the Giants are threatening to move to Toronto, and, and they, they're not sure if they're going to be able to make payroll in 1976. And now you got Johnny LaMaster putting boo on the back of his jersey. And, oh, yeah, the city of San Francisco is crumbling. Like, the society is just crumbling right. around the edges. Uh, I read an entire book about it called Season of the Witch, and it was a fantastic look at how, you know, once the 60s left, the the, the leftover for the 70s wasn't great for a lot of major cities. Yeah, It was sure. really, you know, with, with Jonestown and just there was gnarly stuff in yeah. San Francisco. And it translated onto the field with the Giants. It was just a weird period. And so I've always wanted to see if I could, you know, recapture. With, you know, the, one thing with the Giants in the 70s is they would develop brilliant young outfielders and then just give them away like party favors. Like, here, take Gary Maddox. Here, take Gary Maddox. Matthews. We don't want George Foster. What would we do with him? Uh, and but and then there's just this social context around all this. I don't know. I could go on about it. But again, I don't know. Like I would sell 10. I would sell 50, <laughs> you know, 100. And, and, I think it sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, some people talk to me about it, but I don't even know if I could write one. And then yeah, um, I've also I'm also told 
told frankly, like, you know, if you want to write a book, you better write a book because you want to write a book because the money ain't great. Yes, that's exactly right. And to be fair to myself, when the pandemic hit and everyone was scrambling with, gosh, there's no sports, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what are we going to write about? And my editors were very fair and very understanding when it came to, listen, don't force it. But I said, you know what? I'm going to write about the 50 greatest home runs in San Francisco Giants history. And I did it. And when I counted the words up, it was like 50,000 words, you know, yeah. 60,000 words. And I thought... Gosh, you know what? That should have been my book. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a knucklehead. I should have. I should have. I should have made that a book, fleshed out a little bit more. And you know, obviously, it didn't take me that long because I had fun doing it. Yeah. Um, it's time for a moment of culture. That's when we talk about cultural things um, and make our recommendation. Do you want to go first, or shall I? Uh, I will let you go first so I can tell how it goes. So my recommendation is a film I stumbled into on Netflix. Like just, we've all been there. We've all lived through the pandemic. And at some point you spend more time flipping through Netflix and actually choosing something to watch. Um, and you're just kind of flipping through and, uh, oh, this looks interesting. And it is a documentary called Shirkers. Shirkers as in shirking responsibility. Shirkers. And, um... It is about a, uh, a a girl and her friends. She's a woman now, but she was a teenage girl in Singapore. Uh, and this is when Singapore um, was still kind of transitioning into modern Singapore and was still a very weird, um, culturally tight-ass place. Like, you couldn't chew gum legally. Um, but her and her friends kind of discovered... Um, for lack of a better term, kind of alternative culture and especially interesting films. And they had like a whole almost like underground videotaping thing and people sending them like Blue Velvet on VHS and things like that. And they discovered all these cool films and they wanted to make a movie. Um, and they ended up meeting uh, an older gentleman, older in his 30s. They were all like 18 or so. Um, actually knew a little bit about making movies. And the four of them made this movie in Singapore. Um, and they were all in their late teens and he was in his thirties. It's called Shirkers. And, um, there is some footage shown. It looks like, it looks like it would have been maybe really interesting in a Jim Jarmusch kind of way, but, um, they were all, uh, like they all kind of went away to school. Um, you know, one went to New York, one went, uh, to London, et cetera. And they came all came back one summer and filmed this movie and the older gentleman said, great, go back to school. I'll get this all developed and I'll keep you guys updated. This has been amazing. And he just kind of ghosted all of them. And he and he had all the footage. He had the, the 70 cans of film. Um, and the story goes, I don't want to ruin anything. The story goes from there about them trying to recover this and, and try to, they, 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 this is a big part of their lives and there's just no record of it anymore. Um and it's and it it's a fascinating and incredible story and the kind of thing that I don't think it ever was part of the um, I'm going to make up a term the Netflix zeitgeist you know there's always that one show that was watching it, you know it never was the, the the chess show or anything like that it just showed up there and and um and it was just really fascinating it's like an hour and a half um, if you just like a good story and documentary shirkers on Netflix. I have to watch this just because, uh, you know, you, you told me this was going to be uh, your your pick. And I went to the, went to the Wikipedia page and uh, George's Cardona. Is that how you pronounce it? George's? Yeah. 
Okay, so it, under the Wikipedia page, it's just like around 1976 in New Orleans, uh, George's Cardona, uh, John F. High School, uh, John F. Kennedy High School attendee. Let me take a sip of water. <laughs> Photography mentor to David Duke. Maybe. Like, like that, cinematographer for David Duke's electoral campaign commercial. I was like, what? Crazy talk. It's, it's interesting. I would say, and you'll learn this from watching the movie. Um, not quite sure what his background necessarily <laughs> completely was. Like he, he definitely is a, a, uh, Character. a man of mystery. Um, yeah. And there's clearly like a lot of things. Uh, uh did my are... spit take come across audio? It was very good. It was a good okay, spit good. take. Okay. Um, and it's, it's hard to say like what was going on with this dude. Um, and, and where he, and, and where he came from and, and what he did like at one point like he was like no i can help you guys make this movie i know some i i know some people we can get them involved and they were like involved with the production of apocalypse now and like he didn't know anything you know, he, just, he just said that um but yet at the same time he clearly knew something um you know he knew how to do certain things and then was technically the director um and it's 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 kind of a, it's just it's there's a bittersweet ending to this there's a bittersweet kind of just final chapter to the story where good things happen, but not completely. A bit of a Pyrrhic victory, if you will. This, I gotta see. It's you... really, really... I was surprised. It was like, ah, hey, let's see this. Maybe it'll be good. And I, I just captivated for an hour and a half. I, You know, it, my uh, uh, my wife watches every kind of documentary that she can get her hands on, on mm-hmm. you know, that comes across Netflix. I don't think she's seen this one. Like I said, I, I don't think it, it got into that kind of zeitgeist where she would have stumbled upon it. Yeah, I just thought this, this was kind of flipping and it's like oh documentaries where they got oh, no 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 oh i'm lucked into something which is rare what do you got grant i have it can i i can i do a podcast would that be counter programming no of course not there's room <laughs> for everybody uh this podcast i've been listening to there are two seasons of it and i just finished uh the second one it's called what had happened was and it is a deep dive. It's uh, the host is Open Mike Eagle. Uh, he's a hip hop artist. He's a comedian. Uh, you know, he's got some some really good albums out. And he does a deep dive with uh, a hip hop producer. And the first season was Prince Paul. And I grew up uh, just oh, man. loving De La Soul and, and you know, Handsome Boy Modeling. School. Uh, th- that first Handsome Boy Modeling School is absolutely one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah, it was. You know. It, <laughs> I, I got into to rap in seventh grade when I'd stay up late and watch Yo MTV raps. And of all those bands, like I just gravitated toward De La Soul and like I just love because of the production. The production was yeah. goofy, fun, creative, inventive. And so what the podcast is is just going through this producer's career and going, Okay, here's you know, with Sesasonic, you know, here's what you did as a DJ, a teenage DJ in this up and coming band and blah blah blah, going through De La Soul this album, De La Soul this album, Handsome Boy Modeling School. Uh and so that was a tremendous season his second season the one that just wrapped up is with lp and lp is just he's been one of my favorite artists uh since you know when he was in company flow and and doing his solo albums and def jux was you know i would have every def jux release i would go and i would if you know when cage released an album on def jux i would go out and well you know if it's on def jux i'd better see what this is about and back in the day when you had to buy the cd or else you weren't going to hear it and you would have to buy it sort of on a whim and just yeah i just def jux was the one if i saw that label i was like there's going to be something interesting here so he goes with lp and i just 
it's one thing to like a guy's career. It's another to stumble on an artist who is so self-reflective, so thoughtful. So, you know, he is, he's real. He's not um, holding back his punches. He's not pulling his punches. He's not mincing words, but at the same time, he's respectful. He's respectful for where he is, how successful he has or has not been. And now that he's doing Run the Jewels, you know, Run the Jewels is a big main, you know, line kind of uh, at the top of the festival poster band. And listening to him talk for, gosh, I'm going to say 10, 12 hours this season, Uh it it was just a delight. It was a delight. Open Mike Eagle asks great questions. LP has great answers. The history is fascinating. Uh, The the beginning and end of of his record label, the heartbreak that he's he's had, uh, how Run the Jewels started, how it blew up incredibly fascinating every episode i was just like yes yes this is for me i commissioned this i'm rich and i made these two people talk uh that's how it felt to me uh how do you listen to podcasts is it do you ever like actually sit down and go and listen to this right now for me it's always a background it's it's i'm driving i'm making dinner etc it has to be driving for me or walking. Like yeah. If I'm walking, if I'm walking the dog or if I'm just, uh, you know, taking a stroll, we've got a nice lake uh, in this area. I, I go out there a lot. Uh, driving for the most part, though, and it's going to be 20 minutes here. It's going to be uh, 20 minutes there. And I don't know. I look forward to it. I'll, I'll make excuses to drive. How long a drive you got to the ballpark right now? It's about... I'd say 30 minutes. And that's exactly the kind of place where I, I'm sure I've listened to several. What had happened was is right. uh, a while on the way to the ballpark. In fact, I know I have. And I don't know, you do have some dead time in the ballpark, don't you? Like if you get there earlier, you're waiting for things to happen. I get there really early. <laughs> I just. What do you go with? It's seven o'clock game. What time are you getting there? I'll get there, you know, like like three, you know, yeah. and just because what else am I going to do? I'm not going to fight traffic. Uh, I will say I wish there were record stores around the ballpark. So I right. can just kind of pot. It's really out of my way. It's like, oh, I'm going to the ballpark. I might as well go to the hate district, which is 45 minutes away somehow. Just going <laughs> to paw through some records. Uh, but yeah, I get there early because what else am I going to do? And what's uh, your drive if, if there is a traffic nightmare? It's rare because I've got a a bit of a reverse commute coming from the East Bay. It, right. it could be an hour, uh, but that would that would require an accident or something like that. I have experience where I uh, get in the car and didn't realize that there was a Warriors playoff game down the street. Oh. And everything's just a little intense. And then there's an accident or something. I have had the hour and a half commute home, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty right. Chill. We were talking before we started recording and I'm, I'll be in the Bay Area in August. Um visiting my wife's sister who lives um, pretty far east of you in, in Clayton. And I, and I just suddenly realized like we're landing at SFO at like four o'clock. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that's good. laugh away, man. I'm like, yeah, it's going to take a while, isn't it? Yeah, that is, uh, it, it is intense. And my wife would work. So we live in Castor Valley, which is really right over the San Mateo bridge. The San Mateo bridge connects the East Bay to right. the peninsula. And it, when I want to go to my uh, parents' house, which is right by the, the San Francisco airport, 
on a weekend morning, it's 25 minutes, maybe 30. It's right there. Right. When it is commute time, hour and a half. Right. And then coming home, two hours. I mean, easy. Yeah, so when I'm picking up my kids at the swimming pool in the summer, it's like, you got to get out. It's two o'clock. We got to go. We gotta go. <laughs> We're just living in a car. It's it's a different. It's amazing how much it's gotten worse over the last even five years. Is 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 traffic back? Because I know in Chicago traffic's back. Like obviously there was a time when everyone was home and stuff, but I know in Chicago like traffic traffic's back. Is it is it's, it back there? It's back. It's not as back as it perhaps could be. I think a lot of companies here recognize that there was some value in maybe sure. not spending so much money in real estate. And I do think there's a lot more people working from home. Um, but at the same time, it's back. Like, it's not fun uh, mm-hmm. you know, for me to go uh, from here to Livermore, which is the hometown of Randy Johnson. But also it's, uh, you know, 15 minutes away. And there are things I might want to do in Livermore. But like right now, we're recording this at 3.30 uh, local time. I ain't going there right now. Right. Because if you live in Livermore, you left the office at two thirty and you're slogging through that traffic and it's just a drag, man. <laughs> uh Grant, I want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you joining me this week. Um Absolutely. Do you have anything you want to anything you want to plug? No, I don't think so. Well, you know, I'll counter pro- uh, program with another podcast. Listen to the baseball barista. It's it's me. It once a week. It's me and Hunter Pence talking, uh, which is just fun and fantastic and uh, unlikely. Uh, but we just talk baseball like a couple of dorks, and I think it works. So, uh, baseball barista <laughs> with me and Hunter, Hunter Pence. It sounds good. If you want to follow Grant on Twitter, he is at Grant Brisby, all one word. And uh, thanks again to our special guest, and maybe. And and thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. I can do a a mean Jeff Goldblum impression. You want me to just say that the special... I want you to do that right right now before I stop recording. Uh, uh, It's a... Wait, I just dropped my hand. My earbud came out, and I was like, it killed the whole... No, it's it's, it's, it's like, if I were to be a a special guest, if I were with... With Kevin Goldstein, Kevin, it's like, it's, yeah. So I can do the, I can do the special guest, the whole thing. We can talk about Wanda Franco and his voice. Exactly. So uh, I don't know how to end. How do I? How the hell do I end now? I don't know if that's actually me. Impression. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done it for anyone. It's the worst Jeff Goldblum I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, thanks, everybody. I'm a